Go ahead and take out your Bibles this evening and open them to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. We'll begin our study there in just a few moments. While you're doing that, I want to thank you for being here this evening. Really happy to be here and appreciate the invitation to be able to come and study God's Word together with you for a few moments. I've already enjoyed having some time to see some old friends. It's always good to see Jim and Chris, the Hardys, and enjoyed my time with Kyle and Holly. And there's several of you here, Jack Patterson, the Rudders, and, and others who have been very special to me in my life. And I appreciate you all so much and, and what you've meant to me and my family. And we're very appreciative of the fellowship that we have in Jesus. I'm thankful to be here and have this opportunity to, to talk about this particular topic this evening. Kyle said he wanted us to choose something that was relevant to the church today and something that gets us fired up. And this is something that over the past couple of years that I've really done a lot of self-examination with. And I've really looked into my heart and my life and and really looked and made sure that, that this was an area where I wasn't falling short. And sadly to say, as I'd done some self-examination, I looked in my heart and I looked in my life. I found that this was an area where I needed a lot of improvement on. I needed a lot of help. I needed to really step back and do some examination and, and see wherein I was falling short here. So I want to share this with you this evening from Hebrews. And if you're in the book of Hebrews, you're going to be where you need to be pretty much for the entire sermon as we talk about brotherly love, I want to begin the first part of our sermon this evening. I want us to kind of take ourselves up to Hebrews chapter 13 by talking about some things in the chapters leading up to Hebrews chapter 13 that I believe will help us when we get to that point and we begin to talk about this topic of brotherly love. The writer of Hebrews here is addressing a group of Christians who are contemplating going back to the law of Moses. They're turning back to Judaism and away from Christianity. And as you read throughout the book of Hebrews, you'll find that the writer exerts a tremendous amount of effort in trying to make sure that doesn't happen. He talks to them about why it's a really, really bad idea for them to turn away from Jesus Christ and go back to Judaism. And in doing that, he talks about the preeminence of Christ. He talks about the weakness of the law of Moses. He, he puts Jesus up on a pedestal. He compares Him to Moses and compares Him to the angels. And in doing that, He shows that there's no comparison. He sets Him forth as superior to the high priest, to the sacrifices. And just really in any effect, anything that you could think of in the law of Moses, any and everything that you could think of in this world, the Hebrew writer sets Jesus ahead of all of those things. In short, Jesus is declared greater than all. In John chapter 14 and verse 6, Jesus speaks of Himself and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Me. You remember the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. There He said that salvation was found in no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. These Hebrew Christians had tasted the heavenly gift of God's grace. And to say that going back to Judaism, turning away from Jesus Christ would have been a really bad idea would really be an understatement. Because what they were contemplating doing here was not only going to be a bad idea, but it was going to be something that was damning to their soul. 
And the writer tells them as much throughout this letter. If you look throughout the, the letter to the Hebrews, you find several instances, several warnings of, of the dangers of drifting away, the dangers of falling away, and turning away from Christ and what that means and what's going to happen. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, the writer there talks about drifting away. In chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, he talks about falling away from Jesus because of unbelief. And we could go on and on with these examples, but you see him continually throughout this letter reminding these Christians of why it is such, would be so devastating for them to make this decision. Now, as we look at this, we may, we may think and we may ask the question, why were they considering turning away from something so great as the relationship that they had with Jesus Christ? Why were they thinking about turning away from Christ? Well, we need to consider the environment. The environment in the first century for a Christian was much different than the environment that Christians live in today in this country. You know, we talk sometimes about the difficulty of evangelism and talking to others about Jesus Christ and how it's just so uncomfortable to go up and knock on someone's door. They may say something to us or someone may make fun of us and we kind of consider that persecution. Well, that's not really persecution at all. When we begin to think about first century Christianity, we, we think about the, the widespread persecution where people were being stoned to death for the cause of Christ. Where they were being lit on fire, where they were being beheaded, where they were being put to death in gruesome manner. That's persecution. It seems as though this letter was written sometime in the low to mid 60 ADs, and while Hebrews chapter 4 or chapter 12 and verse 4 states that the believers had not yet resisted the bloodshed, there certainly had been Christian persecution. You think about Stephen in Acts chapter 7 being stoned for preaching Jesus. And we see the Apostle Paul, before he was Paul, Saul of Tarsus, dragging people out of their homes and arresting them and taking them off to prison. So needless to say, being a Christian in the first century wasn't an easy thing. It wasn't an easy thing. It was, it was very difficult and there was a threat of more intense persecution on the horizon. Things were, things were going on and it was taking a toll on these Christians. Now as the Hebrew writer begins here, as he is going through all of this and he gets up to chapter 11, he says all of these things about the superiority of Jesus and just how great that Jesus is. And then he comes to Hebrews chapter 11 and he begins to set, set a standard there. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1 defines faith in this manner, the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And what he's going to do from this point forward is he's going to talk to us about several different individuals from the Old Testament who operated on the basis of faith. They operated on the basis of faith amidst some very difficult circumstances and trials in their lives. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 10 states that Abraham looked for a city which hath foundation, whose builder and maker is God. In regards to Abraham and others, in Hebrews chapter 11 verses 13 through 16, their scripture says, These all died in faith, having not received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed them, that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is a heavenly, wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He hath prepared for them a city. If we're looking for an eternal city, and we're seeing the fruition of those promises out of our lifetime, 
and then we are embracing those promises and in turn confessing that this world is not our home, what it does for us as children of God is it enables us to be able to not grow weary in well-doing. We're able to continue to live this life that we're living even though things around us may be falling down, even though things around us may be happening that we just can't explain, that really tugs at our heart, tragedies in our lives. These Hebrew Christians here could sustain the race that was set before them and all of the trials that they were facing by remembering who they were, who they were and what their destination was. So the writer gives us this example, these examples of all of these heroes of faith, we call them in Hebrews chapter 11. And then what he does is he brings us back to Jesus in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1 and following. And in verse 2, he identifies Jesus as the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. How did Jesus endure the cross? How was it that Jesus was able to endure the cross? Think about what the cross is. How was Jesus able to endure that? Well, I would suggest to you this evening that he, did, he too looked past all of that temporal suffering that He was going to face. He looked past that and He looked unto what was ahead, that being Him sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. Yet, this wasn't something that He did for Himself. It's something that He did for me. It's something that He did for me. He, he left the glories of heaven. He came to this earth. He took on the form of a man. He took on all the human limitations that we have, the weaknesses that we have. And Paul writes in Philippians that this was an act of humility. And this act of humility saw its fruition when Jesus died on that Roman cross. He humbled Himself all the way to the cross. Now, why did Jesus do that? Did Jesus do that for Himself so that, so that He could go back and that He could sit on the right hand of the Father and throne for selfish reasons? Well, we know if we read that text in Philippians that He had all of those things before. He had all of those things before. He left those things behind to come to this earth, not because He had to, not because He necessarily wanted to go through all of the suffering that He went through upon the cross and the time prior to the cross leading up to it. He didn't do that because of any of those reasons. He did that because of you and I. He did that because He loved us. And he's looking past all of these things. You remember when he prayed in the garden? He prayed, not my will, but thine be done. He prayed that three times. He didn't want to go to the cross any more than you or I would have wanted to go to the cross. But what he was doing and reason it was a joy for him was because he was able to look past the suffering of the cross unto what that was going to accomplish. And he realized when he took that seat at the right hand of the Father, that meant that his mission was completed. And completed mission meant that salvation was provided for mankind. Not just one, not just a certain race of people, but for the whole world. Jesus had provided salvation for all of us. He had provided reconciliation for all of mankind. So that brought Jesus a tremendous amount of joy. Now, I would suggest to you in the very same manner, for you and I to remain faithful, for us to be able to run this Christian race, we must look ahead to that which is before us, not what is upon this earth. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So all of those things being true, 
All of those things being true, the writer begins chapter 13 speaking of some things that Christians need to do to remain faithful and some things that, that they can do to help others remain faithful during this sojourn upon this earth. And I would suggest to you that everything that he's talked about in Hebrews chapter 1 up to Hebrews chapter 13 is going to prepare these individuals, it's going to prepare us to be able to really understand the, the admonition that he's giving here in Hebrews chapter 13 verses 1 through 3. Now, he begins by encouraging these Hebrew Christians to let brotherly love continue. And once you think about what he's telling us in that statement, let brotherly love continue. If something is, is to continue, that means that it's something that's already happening. So I would suggest to you that for all that could be said about the Hebrew Christians, for them thinking about turning away from Jesus and going back to, to Judaism, going back to the law of Moses, going back to that which was inferior, for all those things that could be said about them in regards to that, the one thing that they appear to have going for them here was brotherly love. The love that they had for one another. And that very well may be the reason that they had been able to hold on and not, not have taken that final step. By the fact that he encourages them to continue, let brotherly love continue, suggests that this was something that they were already doing and he's wanting to encourage them to continue in that. Now, brotherly love, of course, isn't all that's needed in regards to this Christian race. But it is vitally important. It is so important in being able to, in being able to run this Christian race and being able to finish this Christian race is having a brother or a sister in Christ beside you and encouraging you. It is so discouraging when that's not the case when you see that in certain places. And I would suggest to you this evening that our willingness to to extend brotherly love or withhold brotherly love is going to have an eternal impact upon our soul. The words brotherly love. Here's the Greek word Philadelphia, and you know that word Philadelphia. And in that definition, it means fraternal affection. And I believe that's a great way to describe that. Now what, what we would like to be able to do at this point is say, look out into the world and look at the love that families have for one another. And when you look out in the world and you see the love that families have for one another, that's what you need to have. That's what's being talked about here. But we can't really do that. Because when we look out in the world, we see families bickering. We see families fighting. We see a lack of love. We don't see brotherly love in many families throughout this world today. But that's the idea here. It's the love, the warmth, the fondness, the affection that's to be present among and between family members. Now, one who truly values the meaning of the word family and, and what that's all about, when you really value that and you really de properly define that, that's what he's talking about here. That's the fondness that's being spoken of here in regards to brotherly love. How important is family during a crisis? When you're having a crisis, just how important is it that your family is there holding your hand? They're there to encourage you and to help build you up. When we're facing some trial or some difficult decision in life and maybe we feel like giving up, that fraternal affection is sometimes the one thing that keeps us holding on. Now consider the trials and the decisions that the Hebrew Christians were facing. You know, we're not talking about little things here. We're talking about some very intense persecution that was coming their way. Now back in chapter 5, verse 11 through chapter 6, verse 12, the Hebrew writer there really admonishes these Christians for their lack of knowledge, their spiritual immaturity. 
And that played a large role, I believe, in their failure to look past that current state of affairs and was a major contributing factor to their potential apostasy. However, the one thing that may have kept them hanging on and kept them in that contemplation stage rather than the fallen state was the fact that they, they knew they weren't facing this battle alone. Now, we all get weak in our Christian lives. We all get weak and sometimes we, we, feel, like, we feel like giving up. But sometimes the one thing that keeps us hanging on is the fact that we know that we are worshiping with brothers and sisters in Christ who love us and who are holding on to us and and are trying to help build us up. And sometimes that kind word, that phone call, that text message, whatever it may be, that hug, that backdoor prayer that you have before you leave, whatever it may be, that may be the one thing that helps that individual keep them from falling away. So in the midst of all of this rebuke for their lack of knowledge in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 6, he praises them for their generosity and for their compassion for one another. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 10 says, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love which you have showed toward His name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. The writer writes, you continue in that. You continue doing this. Yes, it was difficult. Yes, it's going to be hard. Yes, there's, you're going to have to work through doubts. You're going to have to be reminded of the preeminence of Christ. You're going to have to be reminded how, how Jesus is superior to these things that you're, you're talking about going back to. But the fact that they weren't facing persecution alone, and the fact that they weren't facing this doubt alone, and the fact that, that they were part of this family and felt this fraternal affection, that enabled them to hang on Sometimes that's just all that we can do is hang on. The very thing that may have kept them in this consideration stage could have been that brotherly love. Notice what Paul writes about these Hebrew Christians back in chapter 10, verses 32 through 38. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 38. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. There the writer says, But call to remembrance the former days in which after you were illuminated, ye endured a great, fi- a great fight of affliction, partly whilst ye were made ga- a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst ye became companions of them that were so used. For ye had compassion of me and my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance." Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in them. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but to them that believe to the saving of our soul. The writer here in this particular text is really revealing some things to us about these Hebrew Christians and where their thought process was. Even though they were in this consideration stage of going back to the law of Moses, they had something here in regards to this brotherly love. The English majority text renders verse 34 this way, You sympathized with me in my chains, and you received the plunder of your possessions with joy, knowing that you have for yourselves a better and enduring possession in heaven. The English Standard Version reads, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. 
I want you to notice the connection here between brotherly love and looking for that enduring and better possession. Think about that for a moment. Brotherly love and looking past this life. These Christians had displayed this kind of love in the past, and the writer is encouraging them here to continue in this. There's a connection here. Because if you look at this, you'll see that, that they, they weren't really bothered by the fact that maybe they had been taken advantage of. They weren't really bothered by the fact that their goods had been plundered because they were looking past this life. They were looking for that enduring possession in heaven, that one that was eternal, that one that was out of this lifetime. Now I want to ask you a question. What is likely to happen to brotherly love when our mindset goes from the eternal to the temporal? When we begin thinking from the eternal standpoint, or rather, we stop thinking from the eternal standpoint to the temporal standpoint, what's going to happen to brotherly love? You know, when one begins to decline, it's very likely that the other isn't far behind. If my brotherly love is declining, if, if I don't care anything about Kyle's problems in his life and, and, and he needs me and I'm just kind of pushing that to the side, I give him the, oh, I'll be praying for you, brother in line, then my focus has probably shifted from the eternal to the temporal. Well, the Hebrew writer here, he's encouraging them, you go on loving in this manner. You go on loving in this manner of Philadelphia here. Go on loving your brothers in the faith. Keep being concerned about each other as the Lord's followers should. Let charity of the brotherhood abide in you. Let brotherly love remain. Keep on loving one another as Christians. Continue to love each other. He's encouraging them to continue in this mindset. Now, he goes on in verses 2 and 3 here in chapter 13, and he addresses two specific areas where the continuance of brotherly love would be vitally important, especially in light of the current situation that these Christians were in. Again, consider first century Christianity and the persecution that they were facing. In verses 2 and 3 of Hebrews chapter 13, he says, Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Verse 2. Which ones do you provide food, shelter, and clothing for? Now, I want you to think about the setting here. Persecution. First century persecution for the Christians. Which ones do you provide food, shelter, and clothing for? Which ones do you help? The writer here says, be not forgetful to entertain strangers. The English majority text version reads, Do not forget hospitality. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Who are they to help in this context? Now there was a dilemma here. If a stranger came along needing food, shelter, clothing, refuge, and they were rejected, who may have they been rejecting here? Who might have they been turning their back on? They may have been rejecting a brother or sister in Christ. They may have been rejecting a messenger of God. See, Scripture says some have entertained angels and have been unaware of it. Now, most will look at this, and we go back, we know, to Genesis chapter, chapters 18 and 19. We talk about Lot's visitors and, and Abraham, and, and, and we talk about that sometimes. And That may be what's under consideration here. However, I'm not sure that angels in the heavenly being is the writer's primary focus here at all. I really don't think that's what he's talking about. Angels are messengers of God. Those being persecuted weren't being persecuted for no reason at all. You know, there's been a lot of persecution throughout the history of this world, and some of it was just, some was, none of it was really just, but some of it was for a good cause, and some of it was for no cause, and it was just for whatever reason it may be. But they weren't being persecuted here 
and mistreated. They were, for no reason at all, they were being victimized for their faith in Jesus Christ. They were known adherents of the Christian faith due to the message that they were preaching. They were preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and things really haven't changed a lot. Many people took advantage of Christian hospitality during this particular time. So the, the concern was legitimate here. And again, the temptation was to draw back. However, the consequences for doing so would be you may leave a messenger of God, you may leave a brother or sister in Christ, a family member, in a state of destitution and want at this time. Now, keep in mind, again, that their hardship wasn't because they were slothful, it wasn't because they were indifferent, it wasn't because they were just lazy, but it was due to their allegiance to Jesus Christ and His message. The Hebrew Christians knew how to combat those fears, though. The writer says, let brotherly love continue. And once again, meaning that it was something they were already doing. If we go back to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34 again, remember what we noted a moment ago, you were cheerful even though your possessions were stolen. Well, why and how were they cheerful even though their possessions were stolen? Since you know that you have a better and more permanent possession. You gladly let your possessions be taken away because you knew you had something better, something that would last forever. What are we willing to sacrifice for our brothers and sisters in Christ? What are we willing to give up? How far are we willing to go? What are we willing to part with in order to practice this brotherly love? What are we willing to sacrifice for our spiritual family? Our hospitality as Christians isn't something that's really optional. Sometimes we talk about how hard that is, about showing hospitality, but that's really something that we can choose not to do that. We can choose to not do a lot of things. But hospitality among Christians and hospitality extending that love toward others is something that must be part of our life. It must be something that is, that is there in our life. And when we fail in this area, it may reveal to us that we're focused more on self than eternity. Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, Be kindly affectionate one another with brotherly love and honor, preferring one another. So he continues there in verse 3, Remember them that are in bonds as bound with them, which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. In connection with this charge to let brotherly love continue, the writer encourages these Christians to remember or to call to mind them that are in bonds or those who are in prison. So again, those under consideration here would be those who were imprisoned for the cause of Jesus Christ, for their faith in Jesus. Now, how intently should we think of these brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, the Hebrew writer here says, just as if you are bound with them. Keep them in mind, those who are in chains, as if chained with them. The ESV says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. The thought of associating ourselves with someone in prison is probably not something that's very appealing to us. Now I want you to think about a situation here in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13-18. through 18. There the Apostle Paul finds himself... He's writing this letter to Timothy and he's talking about his time here in prison. And there's some interesting things happening here in this particular letter that he's writing to Timothy as he talks about those who had deserted him. He identified the summation of all of his deserters there as all who were in Asia. And he names two individuals specifically, Hermogenes and Phygelius here, as having as having deserted him, as having abandoned him while he was in prison. And he talks about Onesiphorus, though, another individual here in verse number 16, who was not ashamed of his chain. 
was not ashamed of his chain. Now, he wasn't imprisoned with Paul in the flesh, but he was in his heart. He was imprisoned with Paul in his heart. He was right there with Paul. Now, others were not. In, in fact, the majority were not. The majority were not, they weren't there with Paul. Paul specifically mentions some of them by name along with the rest of Asia. They wanted nothing to do with the imprisoned apostle of Jesus Christ. And why would they? If you think about Paul and you think about the description of Paul by some of those who were against him, for instance, in Acts 24 and verse 5, your man by the name of Tertullius said, For we have found this man to be a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of this sect of the Nazarene. This same cult, this same sect that Paul himself, when he was Saul of Tarsus, was trying to put a stop to. Now, Tertullius here says, this man, he's a plague. This man, he's been found to be a real pest, a troublemaker for all the Jews all over the world. He's also the, the leader of this group called the Nazarenes. And he says in the Good News Bible translation, this man is a dangerous nuisance. Now, who wants to be associated with a brother in Christ like that? Who wants, to be, who wants to be labeled with that brother in Christ? Now, yes, he's a brother in Christ, but you know, he's, he's being described in this way. A plague, one definition for a plague is a disease that spreads rapidly through a population killing a great many people. Do you want to have fellowship with someone like that? Do you want, to be asso- do you want your name associated with a brother in Christ who's considered to be the plague? He was considered to be a dangerous nuisance who started riots all over the world among the Jews. And now he's in prison. Who wants to be associated with a man like that? Well, not the brethren in Asia. And not Phygelius and Hermogenes. Somewhere along the line, they began to take up residence on this earth. Now, I can 110% say that because when Paul needed them the most, when Paul was in prison for doing nothing more than preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, they were not there. They may have still considered themselves faithful members of the Lord's church, but they wanted no part of the Apostle Paul. They had begun to drift, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1-4. through They had begun to drift away from Jesus Christ, and at some point they stopped putting the emphasis on the better and enduring possession. That's a sure sign that we've, we've, heaven's no longer in our mind anymore. It's no longer our focus. It's when we stop caring about our brothers and sisters in Christ. However, Onesiphorus, he was not ashamed of the imprisoned and battled ringleader of the Nazarene sect, but diligently sought him out in verse 17 when he came to Rome. I want you to think about this scenario here and ask yourself a question. How hard would you have looked for Paul? I can see Onesiphorus earnestly and persistently looking for Paul when he comes in town and he's asking the whereabouts of the Apostle Paul and there's some well-meaning citizens around advising him, steer clear of this man. Stay away from this, this man, Paul. He is this ringleader of this Nazarene cult. Much learning has made him mad. He's like a deadly disease spreading like wildfire throughout the world, killing people. You don't want to find that guy. You want to stay as far away from him as you can. And then I can see Onesiphor saying, yeah, that's the one I'm looking for. And, and he's my brother in Christ. And this thing that's spreading throughout the world like a wildfire, it's not a disease, but rather it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's not killing people, but rather it's saving people. 
Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Paul said in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. It's not a disease. Yes, it's spreading like wildfire, but it is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it provides salvation. Now, where did you say I could find it? How hard would we have looked for Paul in the first century? We asked a question in Bible class not too long ago about how many Christians would remain faithful in first century Christianity. See, it's, it's easy for us to put on our ties and our dress shirts and our suits and come in our air-conditioned building and sit in our padded pews and come in and, and go to services and do all these different things and just give no thought at all to the Lord outside of those few hours that we assemble inside these walls each week. Listen, this isn't Christianity. Christianity is 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and it involves being there for one another and extending this brotherly love that's being talked about here. Because, you know, my sister in Christ needs to know. She needs to know that she has my love and support as her brother all the time. But my sister in Christ really needs to know that she has my love and support when she's being mocked and ridiculed for the cause of Christ. So we don't like to associate with anything that makes us uncomfortable. Brother Kyle Blevins, he needs our love and support all the time as a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but he really needs it when he's being scorned and despised for speaking the truth. Well, Kyle preached this lesson, and, and it's not politically correct, and the community's come down on him, and we're just going to kind of act like we don't know Kyle. We love him, he's our brother, but going to distance ourselves from him because we don't want to be, we don't be associated with that. That's not, that's not brotherly love at all. Yeah, it's really the type of love that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 5. The love that, that the tax collectors, sinners have. We'll extend love to those who love us, and we think, but when things get hard, we don't want no part of that. See, Paul needed his brother. He needed his brothers and sisters to show their love and support for him while he was in prison. And what he received was desertion from all of Asia. He received abandonment from Phygelius and Hermogenes. They left Paul behind. However, Onesiphorus let his brotherly love continue. How hard would we have looked for Paul? The same thought continues there in verse 3. Remember them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. The word adversity here means to treat ill, oppress, or to plague. And the only other time that this word is found in the New Testament is two chapters back in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 37, where it is translated into the word tormented. Into the word tormented. Remember them that are in bonds as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. The verse in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 37, talks about at the end of that great faith chapter, that they were stoned and sawn asunder, tempted, slain with a sword, wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute and afflicted and tormented. Now the same charge is given here as with those in bonds for the cause of Christ. Remember them. Keep them in mind. Keep them in mind. And that doesn't simply mean think of them with no, no corresponding action. Don't do anything about it. This is a calling them to mind and to be followed with some type of action. You know, that action may be prayer. And perhaps that's all we can do sometimes. And I don't mean to diminish prayer when I say that's all we can do, but I do believe it's become way too easy for us to say, I'll be praying for you. You know, on Facebook now, or te you don't have to type the whole word prayer. You type PR and it just pops up and you can just click it. 
prayers, prayers, praying for you, prayers, pray. But I'm afraid sometimes what we do is we say, I'll be praying for you, and we kind of drop that line without any thought of really becoming actively involved in the adversity that our brother and sister is actually facing. We're comfortable with saying, be warm, be filled, yet do nothing to make one warm or filled, James 2.14. And sometimes we're comfortable with mentioning our brothers and sisters in Christ by name who are facing adversity, yet if they were so minded, they may say to us, and I tell you, this really hit home with me over the last couple of weeks. They may look at us and say, thanks for the prayers. But I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you didn't take me in. I needed clothes, you didn't give me anything to wear. I was sick and in prison, you didn't take care of me. So I really appreciate your prayers and you're praying for me, but where in the world have you been? Because you have done nothing at all to help. And those are the words of Jesus. For me personally, over the past few years, I have I want to be a Matthew 25 Christian. Do you remember Jesus and his rebuke of the Pharisees? He said, You pay tithes if you meant innocent coming, but you have neglected the weightier matters of the law. He said, Not that you shouldn't be doing these things, but you shouldn't leave the others undone. Jesus said, I'll be saying this to some on the day of judgment about their negligence of me when they say, Lord, we've never seen you like this. If I seen Jesus like this, then yeah, I would help Jesus. Well, Jesus says, well, if you didn't help them, you didn't help me. See, it, it, please don't misunderstand me. Bible authority is important. Doctrine is important. Worship is important. How we do things is important. But it's not going to mean a thing if we don't extend brotherly love to our brothers and sisters in Christ. If there's not some type of action behind the words that we say. If I get up here and I preach this lesson to you and I don't put any of this in practice in my life, I'm nothing but a hypocrite. It means absolutely nothing to me. Let brotherly love continue. Remember those who suffer adversity. How? As though you were suffering as they are. Remember those who are mistreated. How? As if you were being mistreated. Don't forget those who are suffering. How? Imagine that you are there with them. That's that's how we are to be as brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the relationship that we must have. That's what the family of God is all about. God has given us one another. He didn't ask us to do it by ourselves. He don't want us to do it by ourselves. And we need one another. Let brotherly love continue. You know, every time I've ever visited this congregation, I've been welcomed with open arms. I have. I've preached here one time before, and I've visited a few times on Sunday afternoons, and Everyone is so friendly. And I appreciate that so much. That says a lot about your love and care for one another. I don't know you personally, many of you, as far as what goes on in your day-to-day lives. But, but you sure make people feel welcome when they come here. I appreciate that. Let that continue in your lives, if that's true about you. Continue loving one another. 
Would you pray with me at this time? Our Heavenly Father, we humbly come before you this evening. We thank you so much for the gift of one another. We thank you for our brothers and sisters who we know understand some of the trials and struggles that we face daily in our lives. And we pray, Father, that we can be here for one another and we can strengthen one another and build one another up and encourage one another. And we can look to the greatest example of all, your son Jesus, who sacrificed everything so that we could have a home in heaven when this life is over. He is our perfect example for us to follow. Help us to always prefer others over ourselves. Forgive us, Father, when we fall short, when we leave things undone. Give us strength and courage to admit our shortcomings and to work on those and to grow closer to one another and closer to you. Help us to take advantage of this wonderful gift that you've given us, this fraternal affection, this brotherly love, and help us to extend that to one another always. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This evening, if you're not part of the family of God, we want to encourage you to do that. There's no greater family to be part of. And what you'll find out when you become part of God's people, everywhere you go, every town you go to, you've got family there. You find a brother or sister in Christ and you have family there. And you can go worship with those brothers and sisters that maybe you've never met before and it doesn't take very long till you feel like you've known them your whole life. That's something special about the family of God. If you want to be part of the family of God this evening, we would encourage you to confess your faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Make a change in your life. Decide you're going to turn away from the path your own if it's going away from God and you're going to begin to walk toward God. You're going to give your life to Him. You're going to sacrifice your life for Him and be buried with Him in the waters of baptism. You'll remember on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, the Apostle Peter preached the first great gospel sermon after the ascension of Jesus back to heaven. And he's preaching to those individuals there, and, and they realized something clicked. They were pricked in their hearts. They realized that they had crucified their Messiah. And they asked a very simple question. They said, what must we do? And Peter responded, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of your sins. Be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of your sins. You can do that this evening. You can have your sins washed away. You can rise to walk in newness of life. We would encourage you to do that now as together we stand and as we sing.